Research indicates up to half of all teenagers have been involved in some form of self-injuring behaviour, but there are many self-harming adolescents who don't get the care they need and along the way face discrimination, stigma and a lack of understanding. I just wasn't coping and kept on trying to find a way out of it and sometimes I thought that maybe someone would be able to rescue me, I guess. It was my stress relief. It was how I dealt with my problems and made myself feel I still had some control in myself. It was, it was more of a punishment thing for myself and for others also, I guess, like, look how bad you've made me feel, this is what, this is what you've done to me. I don't really notice it much now. Um, occasionally someone will notice the scars and that reminds me that I still have them. I just think of them as kind of a, a sign of survival, I guess. It was, it was a cycle. Afterwards, after I did it, I hated myself, but then I'd get angry and I'd want to do it and I'd get itchings to do it because it was what made me feel better. Deliberate self-harm, the act of self-injuring without intending to commit suicide, provokes the gamut of feelings in people, from shock and anger to disdain and cruel jokes. It's little understood and little discussed. I'm Sally Round, and in this insight I talk to young people about why they've self-harmed and how they've managed to stop, and find out what's in the pipeline to improve adolescent mental health. I've just arrived in Palmerston North where I've come to meet a young woman I'll call Sandra. She doesn't want to use her real name. She used to self-harm, started in her very early teens. Now she's in her early 20s and studying, training to be in the area of youth mental health. I had been at college for about half a year and I don't know, I just didn't feel like I fitted in so well there and at home I was struggling. I felt like I was the naughty child, my sister was perfect, um, I was fighting all the time with my parents. Sandra was 13 and in her first year at college when she got in with the wrong crowd. In her second year, Sandra felt things hadn't improved. I started self-harming and I knew other people that had done it as a way to make themselves feel better and so I started doing that when I got angry or upset. I thought, well, if they use that as a way to deal with their anger, then, you know, maybe it will help me and make me feel better and make me feel like I have some control over my life. And that's what it did. And for me, after I did it, I hated myself even more. But it became a habit and kind of like an addiction. Sandra was self-harming by cutting herself three or four times a week. Sandra's mother sensed something was not right and helped her get specialist care. But the self-harm cycle was hard for Sandra to break. Like it was a rush and then it would just come back and hit you like, what have I done? Kind of. It was a lot of like so many emotions that you got after doing it. It was, you know, you'd be angry with yourself for doing it, but then you'd be relieved because you felt you had some control of your life. But then you'd be sad because you knew you had just, you know, cut yourself and caused more harm to yourself. At 17, after therapy, medication for depression and willpower, she stopped, despite also having to cope with the suicide of her best friend. I kind of realised that I couldn't keep doing this as a way to stop being angry and the pain and stuff. I knew I had to find a different way to um, relieve myself of the stress and 
it wasn't something I could continue doing because it was just going to get worse and worse and I was the one that had to live with the scars of doing this. Even though you shouldn't look at people and judge them, I knew that if someone looked at me and saw them, they would automatically have thoughts of, oh, she's just a you know attention seeker and she's crazy. Fiona, now a young mother, started experiencing intense emotions and distress at the age of 13. The start of mental illness, which she battled throughout her teens and 20s. When I was 17 or 18, things started getting worse. Yeah, my feelings were getting stronger and I was not really coping with them. And <laughs> um, I think I was actually feeling sort of suicidal. I didn't really want to die, but I just wanted to make the feeling stop. I cut myself, I cut my arms. Um, I hadn't found anything else that helped with how I was feeling, so when things were really bad, I'd keep cutting my arms. Fiona was referred to the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service, CAMS, but despite therapy and what she describes as an amazing caseworker, she continued to self-harm. A couple of times she needed stitches for her injuries and her wounds were sometimes met with impatience and even anger from healthcare workers. It was actually a nurse, I think, who did the stitching up and she was came across as quite angry at me. I think she saw that, it, that I was wasting people's time by causing an injury to myself. Just turning up, she thought that that was unfair on the people there because it was upsetting. Some people were quite understanding. Fiona describes getting the right care as a bit of a lucky dip. Eventually, she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and her life turned around. I don't think I'll ever do it again because I've got to such a different place now. I'm on medication that really helps and have a loving partner and my life is so much better. So I have other ways of getting through the sort of normal ups and downs of life. I think it's just I did it so much that probably became a bit of an ingrained practice. So what would you say to those young people who are doing this at the moment? That you're not alone and it's not something to be ashamed of and that you should get help with whatever it is that means you're needing to do it. Just reach out to people and sometimes you have to keep trying to get help. Um, yeah, it took years for me not being understood and you end up in the too hard basket. I was feeling really, really, really low because my best friend had just um, slept with my boyfriend and kind of everyone had taken her side about it, said that I was overreacting about it and stuff. And then at the same time I started getting, I started getting sick, getting really sore chest pains and stuff. For two months, Lucy, not her real name, self-harmed. She was 16 at the time. Her emotional distress was compounded by other health issues. Her self-harming became common knowledge among her peers. It was basically just like, you're an idiot. Um, you're a attention seeker, you're a drama queen. Just get over yourself. Lucy's mother was vigilant, while Lucy had counselling and spent long periods out of school. 
I would go off and I'd drive into town, buy craft knives, and then I'd hide them around my room, and then by the next day they wouldn't be in my room anymore because she would have come in and done a check, and I know she was really upset about it, but she tried not to show it, and she basically just went about and did things, sort of practical things, to try and keep me from doing it again and took me to the doctor and got them to bandage up my arm and things. I think if I told my mum and she'd been overly dramatic and jumped around and cried and screamed... It would have been worse. I would have felt guilty and probably kept on doing it more. But basically, she was just like to me, to feel better, you don't need to do this. And she gave me other outlets. Just kept an eye on me, like, just made sure that I was OK without making a big deal about it. Lucy says she thought self-harming would take away the emotional pain she was feeling. Losing her first boyfriend was such a huge thing in her life. She felt it was a way of punishing herself and those who had hurt her. Looking back now, I just wish I could shake my 16-year-old self and be like, you're so stupid, it's the stupidest thing you've ever done. I, 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 just feel, I feel sorry for myself almost. I'm like, you poor thing. But um, no, I, now I know that it's just the worst decision I've ever made in my life, and I will stand by that. It will always be the worst decision I've ever made in my life. I will never, ever do it again, never. It's just not worth it. Like Even with the stigma attached with it, people, you've got those scars for the rest of your life. One of the issues around cutting is that people react very, very strongly to it. It seems to be a violation of all the sorts of things that we typically hold dear, our drives for survival. Associate Professor Mark Wilson is the head of Victoria University's School of Psychology. He says research shows self-injurious behaviour most commonly starts around the age of 14. Well, I think it's safe to say that when people think of self-injury, they primarily think about cutting. And I think it is the prototypical form of self-injurious behaviour. One of the consequences has been the stereotype of the self-injuring person as being female, because I think there's reason to believe that women, when they self-injure, are more likely to engage in cutting behaviour. But uh, I think more recent research suggests that men and women probably engage in self-injury to roughly similar levels, but the way in which they do it might differ. Dr Jessica Garish is a research fellow at Victoria University. Her study of Wellington students found about half of 18-year-olds have engaged in at least one incident of self-injury before they leave school. The study cast a wide net, including risky behaviour, binge drinking and emotionally abusive relationships. Around 14% were cutting. In my PhD research, it was identified that many people self-injure for emotional-based reasons, so for having underlying emotional difficulties that they found difficult to manage, strong feelings of loneliness, for example, or feeling very sad, and not potentially having other coping mechanisms to manage that, like other self-soothing techniques, being able to go off and do another activity which would help improve their mood, for example. And for some people, self-injury is a form of managing their mood, so a form of, of coping with how they're feeling at that time. And of course this is very different for, for each person. I do think that it's more common now than it used to be, and I think part of the reason for that is that people are more aware of it, particularly young people. It's very unusual to come across you know, an 18-year-old secondary school student who doesn't know someone who is self-injured. People often think about self-injury as being an attention-seeking behaviour. The downside there is that attention-seeking seems a lot less serious 
than you know, what people often think of when they think of serious self-injury, which is worthy of, of, of seeking help for. And one of the things that I think some of our research um, has suggested is that there's kind of a dilemma for a person who engages in self-injury. How do you move from being someone who self-injures privately, who most people would think does need help, to actually asking for help without becoming part of that attention-seeking stereotype? But specialists say it's important to seek help. The young people who self-harm have higher rates of depression. Associate Professor Sally Merry is a child and adolescent psychiatrist at the University of Auckland. She's helping to develop a therapy which could give young people easier access to the help they need. I'd been working clinically in the child and adolescent mental health services and uh, was really aware of a big wait for young people trying to access mental health services and also about the um, very high rates of depression that are in teenagers, both in New Zealand and elsewhere, and the number of young people who'd never access um, services. So to get an idea, about a fifth to a quarter of young people will have had a clinically significant depressive episode by the age of 18, and about 80% of those will never receive treatment. Sparks is an animated fantasy-based computer game developed with Ministry of Health funding and part of a government focus on so-called e-therapy as a way of improving youth mental health. The game is a self-help resource which delivers cognitive behavioural therapy, a treatment for depression, in a format which is designed to be easily accessible and appealing to adolescents. The developers are waiting to hear if they'll get government funding to put it into practice following good results in trials. Professor Mary says it can do only so much for people who self-harm. In terms of helping manage mood and using different strategies to deal with frustration and feeling down, I think it's potentially helpful for that. Um, young people self-harm for a lot of different reasons and I think this might help with some parts of the self-harm and not with others. And some of the young people I've seen who've been engaged in self-harm have families where there's a lot of fighting and infighting and, um, and there's a lot of tension and frustration around that. I think if you don't address some of those kind of external issues which are driving some of the behaviour, you're not going to make a change so much. E-therapy, like Sparks, is among initiatives in Prime Minister John Key's $62 million youth mental health package announced last year. It includes more youth workers and nurses trained in mental health in schools, a review of the school guidance system, alcohol and drug education. There's more support promised for youth-focused health centres. Hello. Hello. Lovely to see you. This is just like a house. Absolutely. That's the idea. It's, it's like stepping into someone's home. Exactly. And the young people who come feel so comfortable. Being unofficial... It's really helpful because that decreases the embarrassment. 298 Barbados Street in Christchurch offers free health advice and counselling to young people. It reopened last year and Dr Sue Bagshaw says not before time. She's an adolescent health expert and GP at the centre and has seen a spike in the number of young people needing mental health care, including counselling for self-harm. Dr Bagshaw says this tallies with research showing anxiety, depression and other mental disorders become much more obvious 18 months to two years after traumatic events like the February earthquake. 
I'm getting messages from school counsellors and school nurses who are also remarking on the same issue. And when I talk to the young people who I see, it's a frustration thing as much as anything. And I think they're reflecting the frustration of their parents. Um, of course, there are many, many reasons why people self-harm. Um, but that certainly seems to be quite a common reason. Price which is particularly different because of the earthquakes. It's really interesting. Children and young people tend to reflect emotion more than because they think with their emotions. That's the stage of development they're in in terms of their brain development stuff. And so I think they act with their emotions as well. And they absorb the emotion of the family around them. Dr Bagshaw says youth-specific community services like 298 fill an important gap in mental health services for teens. She says mental health makes up a third of the centre's total business. We've been trying hard to train up GPs. The problem with youth health is that GPs aren't used to seeing young people because they don't come. The reason for that is a lot of young people don't realise that GPs do anything about mental health. They think of GPs as for physical health care. When it comes to self-harm, usually they don't talk to anybody about it and then parents find out and then parents will bring them um, because they're so worried, understandably. Um, and again, a lot of the parents who are bringing them recently are saying, oh, I'm so glad you're here because we wouldn't know where to go otherwise because it's not serious enough for the secondary mental health care system. Um, and GPs, as I say, aren't all that equipped to dealing with this. And it takes longer than 15 minutes to deal with it. With mental health such a big part of their work, Dr Bagshaw wants more resources for one-stop shops like hers and more consistent access to such services throughout the country. 80% of mental illness starts in the 10 to 25 age group. It's not diagnosed, it's not treated, but it starts then. So if we can do early intervention by providing these youth-friendly places where people can just drop in and not necessarily because they might be feeling like they might be going loony, but it's not labelled that way, that's so helpful because we know early intervention, early treatment gives a much better prognosis. Dr Bagshaw says her first job in dealing with self-harm is usually to reassure parents and other caregivers. Once I'd realised that the young person isn't intending to kill themselves, it's, it's demonstration of frustration or whatever reason, my next main job is to reassure parents um, and to reassure them that this is treatable, that we can get through this, but we need to work together as a team. I think what I'm really concerned about is the fact that nobody's addressing this underlying stuff. The Youth 2000 study in its wave of collection of data in 2007 found 20% of young people with symptoms of depression. That's the high school kids who are in school, who haven't left early, who are there on the day. That's, that, if that's not being addressed, then I think the ensuing stuff we will see is themselves addressing it, because they're not stupid. Um, and they don't want the pain, and so they self-medicate. My impression is that self-harming is often uh, time-limited, and if someone is self-harming over a longer period of time, then it's often a, a call for help, I guess, or something that can be masking a deeper-seated issue. Sarah Maindonald is a school guidance counsellor at Hillmorton High School in Christchurch. I see it as more of a, a coping strategy that some students use if they're feeling quite distressed. Again, I guess sometimes it might also correlate with them trying to fit into a peer group, which developmentally is a very common need for teenagers, trying to belong to a particular group. But it certainly isn't a behaviour that I'm saying widespread over you know, dozens of children at a time. 
But like Dr Bagshaw, Sarah Maindonald has seen an increase in students seeking help for depression, anxiety and family violence at the crucial two-year mark post-earthquake, with some using self-injury in an attempt to find a coping strategy. She says stretched mental health services mean there's a wait for specialist care and students in distress for longer periods. At present we've got students who've been on the waiting list for youth specialty services, which is our moderate to severe youth mental health service. They've been waiting for three months to be seen, and those are students with a high level of suicidal ideation, so sometimes it is quite concerning that it's taken that long. They're not always self-harming, but um, I would be evaluating their self-harming in the context of their general wellbeing and safety. Obviously if students are very unsafe, there is also psychiatric emergency service. So it's not that there's nowhere else for them to go. But in terms of you know the number of students waiting, it's definitely been worsened with the context of the earthquake in Christchurch. Jill Renata is another on the front line of youth mental health, working as a counsellor at a small NGO supporting Wairarapa families. Part of her job is helping parents navigate the issue. They often don't want to talk about what's happening in front of their child and in fears that it'll make it worse. It's like walking on eggshells, they, they say. They're totally consumed worrying about everything they say and do with that child so that they don't trigger anything. A recent mum came in and um, I said, would you like to bring your daughter in to talk with me? And she said, absolutely, um, just so that I can refer her to the appropriate um, organisation. Um, this lass had been cutting. She said it wasn't her doing that, it was a cat scratching her. So we built a plan of support for this lass. Mum was worried about coming forward and bringing her forward in order not to exacerbate it. To me, a problem acknowledged is moving towards dealing with the problem. Jill Renata believes there's a gap in services for building resilience which research suggests is an important buffer in preventing people from engaging in self-harm. I think our children, as well as adults, need to learn to be res more resilient, and that's about learning how to accept disappointments, failures, falling down and picking ourselves up and rubbing our knees off and carrying on, also having the ability to know when we need to ask for help. At Ofiro Bay School in Wellington, a class of 8 to 10-year-olds has a hypothetical task ahead, learning to ride a bike. What about this um, boy here? What's he got? A helmet. A helmet. You need to get a helmet before you ride a bike. No, but that girl already That won't fit on here, though. Yeah, that would be the first step. You can cut the picture out and just glue it. It doesn't matter if it doesn't quite fit the steps. They've broken the job into steps, with rewards along the way, and strategies to use when things don't work out. It's all part of a programme building resilience called Friends, as their teacher Nicola Clissold explains. Children come equipped with all sorts of things that worry them and set them off. And when you've got 29 different dynamics in a classroom, then um, it can lead to all sorts of issues if children aren't managing their successes and disappointments effectively. So this is a programme that gives them strategies so when something is really upsetting them, they can kick back into it. First of all, they can be aware of what their feelings are and what it's causing their body and their mind to feel like. And then they've got some strategies to relax 
to think positively and then to work out a plan for what they're going to do when they're feeling more confident and brave. Nicola Clissold has noticed a big increase in anxiety among children. Certainly the research is showing us that children that are highly anxious early on, it's the highest indicator of adolescent and adult anxiety and depression. So if we can deal with the anxiety at an early age, then um, we can reduce the likelihood of adolescent and adult depression. A version of the programme for adolescents is being piloted in 10 New Zealand secondary schools this year as part of the health curriculum. Nicola Clissold thinks resilience building should start as early as possible. Her students are already using techniques they've learnt. Yeah, it also helps us to calm down in these things. The does because it's remember to relax. And it gives you lots of relaxing ideas, like we were talking about milkshake breathing in our lesson, which is when you breathe in really slowly and you hold it and you breathe out really slowly. Yeah. It's just one. Do you use that now in other, just outside of school? Sometimes I use it if I'm getting really, oh no. Yeah. Yeah, it helps, definitely. A resource teacher of learning and behaviour with the Ministry of Education, Margaret Lucas, says the programme teaches children how to regulate their emotions. She's also seen a rise in young people needing help for anxiety. Some children don't even know what emotions are. If you ask them to describe what is happiness, what is worried, what is sad, they couldn't even give you an example to go with that emotion. And then they wouldn't know what happens to their body when they're in that emotional state. Maybe it's that families have just got busier and it's part of missing within family knowledge and talking these days or just lack of actually relating to each other. The young women who've self-harmed that I spoke to say it's a good idea to build more resilience from an early age. The earlier you started out, the better, because, you know, it becomes a habit to be able to find better ways to deal with it and relax. And better to do it before you get to the teenage years where everything else becomes problems in your life. But they also want more open discussion on self-harm, especially in schools. I wish that I could have had someone who'd gone through it to, to talk to about it, kind of like kind of like me now to tell a 16 year old you know I've been through it it's not worth it sort of like a buddy or something I think would have been really really good so I reckon having someone that you could relate to who's gone through it would be really really beneficial. Professor Mark Wilson and his team at Victoria University have begun a study following a group of secondary school students through their college years to find out potential triggers for self-harm and come up with guidelines and resources for parents, health professionals and schools. The label of self-injury has a stereotype associated with it, of attention-seeking, which is a very negative stereotype given the vast range of reasons that people might actually engage in self-injury. And that's one of the things which I'd like us to be able to do, is to engage with people across clinical disciplines, but actually with the broader public as well, about why people might engage in this behaviour that, on the surface, is really difficult to understand and is most easily and accessibly characterised in terms of things like attention-seeking, which does a disservice to the people who actually engage in it. I think it's still a bit of a taboo subject. I think it definitely should be talked about because a lot of people do it, um, especially teenagers and young adults, and I think that people doing it can feel very alone and ashamed, and if people were talking about it more openly, then they'd know that they weren't alone and they could get through people it. People worry if you talk about it, it will trigger others to do it. It'll normalise it. 
Yeah, and I think there's research that shows that sometimes talking about it, that does mean that people do it a bit earlier, but it's not actually as bad as people make it out to be. (laughs) And I think the benefits of talking about it probably outweigh that. I'm Sally Round, and that's Insight for this week. If you or someone you know is self-harming, check out our website, radionz.co.nz, and follow the links through to the Insight page for suggestions of where to go for help. If you'd like to contact the Insight team, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz or tweet us at rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that program. It was produced by Philippa Tolley, with technical production by Jeremy Veal.